why have you forsaken me? I am a Palestinian, a Syrian, an Egyptian, and a resident of Gaza. Why have you forsaken me? My name is Angel Torero. I want to welcome you to On Mission with Chris Wright, a podcast produced by Langham Partnership. Visit langham.org to learn more about Langham. What can Christians in Indiana learn from Christians in Indonesia? How can church leaders in Mumbai equip pastors in Miami, which is where I live and serve? On this podcast, we listen in on conversations between Chris Wright and church leaders in Africa, Asia, and Latin America, where my family has their roots. We hope you discover how much wisdom the church in the West has to gain from their sisters and brothers in villages and towns around the world. This podcast is brought to you by the Langham Partnership, a ministry founded by John Stott, to equip church leaders in the majority world. Visit langham.org to learn more about Langham and explore more resources from global church leaders. Our host is Dr. Christopher J.H. Wright, known to many as Chris Wright, a respected theologian and award-winning author of more than 30 books, including critically acclaimed The Mission of God, Unlocking the Bible's Grand Narrative. When he's not writing books, Chris serves as International Ministries Director for Langham. Today, we take you back to the Holy Land with part two of Chris's conversation with Johanna Catanacho, a Palestinian-Israeli Bible scholar who lives in Israel. Born in a conflict during the Arab-Israeli War, today he's an advocate of radical love, unity, and peace for his homeland. We can all learn from his incredible insights. Now, let's pick up at the conclusion of their conversation. I wonder whether you could say just a little bit about how the church in the West, the United States, here in Britain where I'm based, how can we understand better the situation in Israel-Palestine? What do we need to know? And what, what could we need to do or perhaps to stop doing that would help the cause of peace? And I, I, I don't just mean, as you said, uh, bringing people to the knowledge of the love of God, coming to the cross, coming to personal forgiveness. Of course we believe that. But in any kind of way to contribute towards the processes of reconciliation and peace, in uh, particularly in Israel, Palestine. We could go to the wider Middle Eastern world as well, but that's a huge issue. Is there any advice that you can give for Western Christians as to how we can best help or at least stop hindering in this process? I think that, that Christ gives us that love should always be our compass. And so if our theology does not produce mercy and love, then we need to pause and, and try to understand. I mean, sometimes people study eschatology last days in a way that will produce mainly wars and killing people. And, uh, but, but I understand that we need to look at scripture and the heart of God in a way that transform us to be like Jesus. And so, and so the question is for, for me, how can your theology be a blessing? For a long period of time, I used to debate what is right and what is wrong. I'm not against defining what is right and what is wrong. That's fine. 
but I will say something might be shocking to some. When I looked at Genesis 1 to 11, all the problems of the fall, in Genesis 12, God wanted to provide a response and an answer to that. And God's answer was not to define what is right and what is wrong. God's answer was to give the source of blessing. And blessing in scripture is much more than saying nice things. I mean, how can you bless, uh, uh, let's say, the, the environment? How can you bless social reality? How can you bless spirituality? How can you bless a church uh, or missions? How can you bless it? Blessing is to bring divine life into human realities and to empower human realities with that life. God wants the response to the problems of the world to be a blessing. So now I want to ask whoever is doing theology, how can your theology, how is it a blessing to the people around you? How is your theology a blessing to Palestinians? Because God loves them and God wants your theology to be a blessing to them. And God wants your theology to be a blessing to the Jewish people as well. So instead of being caught up in debating all the time, this is right, this is wrong, fine if you want to do it, but then ask the question, how can your theology be a blessing to us? In Israel, Palestine, from the river to the sea, there are 14 million people living. About 7 million people are Jews and 7 million people are Palestinians. How can your theology of that particular land be a blessing to these 14 million people, not only to the 7 million people? Thank you. Thank you for that. Let's move on to another aspect of your life and work, Johanna, because you are a, a writer and an author, and I'm sure that you've written probably quite a lot of material in Arabic. I know that you were one of the editors of the Arabic Contemporary Bible Commentary, this one-volume commentary in the whole Bible uh, in Arabic, which is a marvelous gift to the Church and an, an amazing accomplishment given the circumstances in your region. Uh, and uh, you're, I think, with a primary Old Testament editor and contributor to that volume. You've also written a book called The Land of Christ, A Palestinian Cry, which is published by Whip and Stock and uh, is available. All these books, now that are in English, are available. And one that I'd, I'd love you to uh, tell us a little bit more about, and I'm just holding it up here, uh, is Praying Through the Psalms, which I understand originated as a series of, of Arabic, in many ways, poetic reflections on the Psalms of your own, because I know that you also are a poet. Uh, but this is now, thankfully, translated into English for us. And uh, it's a reflection on every one of the Psalms in successive days. And I would just love you, if you want to either tell us something about the book, but then to read to us, if you would, uh, your prayer from Psalm 22. Amen. Amen. I want to say that in my relationship with God, sometimes I am weak. I am not able to continue. It is only by the grace of God that I can stand. And I want, you know, my Christians, brothers and sisters to understand and to discover the wealth of the grace of God, because that is the fountain 
that we need to drink from every day in order to continue our spiritual journey. And so in, in one, at one time, I was burned out, I was exhausted, and I, I, I felt like I am so tired from ministry because I live in a country where there are so many pressures around us. And so uh, my wise wife told me, please stop whatever you are doing. Let's go to a prayer meeting in Bethlehem. This is very nice to go to the same city in which David was praying. And uh, so I went to this conference in Bethlehem. And God challenged me very strongly and said, Johanna, you are dealing with a lot of difficulties, but you are not praying enough. You are not spending time with me. I challenge you to spend time with me. So I, I was very convicted because I felt like, you know, the reason I'm burned out because I am not really spending enough time with God. And as, as a minister, it was very difficult to, uh, to admit my weakness, but I had really to stop everything. And I decided to wake up every day at 4 a.m. and spend time with God until 7 p.m. And so I woke up at 4. I said, okay, God, now I'm, I'm, I am awake. What do you want? <laughs> so, so God uh, put on my heart, I want you to pray. I said, okay, but what should I say? You know, so, so I said, okay, why don't you start reading from Psalms? So I said, I want to pray the Psalm. So I put the Psalm and I started praying verse by verse, reading the verse, praying it back to God, reading the verse and praying it back to God. But then I said, I don't understand this verse correctly. So I opened commentaries, reading the interpretation and then praying it back to God. And after one or two hours, I would be so uh, filled with the ideas of this verse with prayer. And I said, Lord, help me to now write down how can I pray this psalm in the contemporary Middle Eastern realities. And so I would write down whatever God put on my heart and uh, try to work out it in a way that it is more poetic. And after I uh, have written uh, these uh, prayers, I wasn't uh, intending to publish. I was just intending to have it privately for me. But then one day I saw people who were very struggling uh, with their faith. And so I decided to put it on Facebook, just one prayer. And when I put it, I was surprised by the response. People said, oh, this helped us so much. So I decided to put one more, and then this is how it, uh, it was spreading. And in one of the conferences, I, maybe in Panama, if I remember correctly, um, and uh, there was a Langham publisher, uh, Peter Quant, uh, came to me, and uh, I read, he asked me to, uh, they asked me in the conference to read a prayer. So I translated one of my prayers, I read it at the conference. And when I read it, uh, he talked to me, he said, where did you come this prayer from? I said, well, I have a book in Arabic that I've written. And he said, can you translate two of them and send them back to me? And I did. And this led to the journey of putting the thing in English. So I will, I will read this, but I want to say, let us not just read this, let us really pray this together. 
and give all honor to Jesus Christ because it is only by his grace and by his power that we are able to think and to write and to do anything because without him, we are nothing. But with him, everything can be a blessing. So let's pray this prayer, please, Johanna. I will read prayer from Psalm 22. O Lord, why have you forsaken me? I am a Palestinian, a Syrian, an Egyptian, and a resident of Gaza. Why have you forsaken me? After sunset, darkness prevails. There is no rain, drought, is everywhere. I look at the symptoms, trying to discern the disease. As I contemplate my predicament, I wonder if you have forsaken me. Where are your first mercies? Where are the spiritual awakenings and the blessings? I pray and you don't respond. Do you consider me your son? If so, why? Why am I considered a disgrace before the world? Your church is dispersed and on the run in Iran, Syria, and Iraq, so many places. I have nothing to be proud of. I feel like a despicable worm before the rest of humanity. I have no beauty in me and no fortitude. I am surrounded by evildoers trying to kill my Christian faith and my religion. Extremists kidnap your followers in Syria. They threaten us in Egypt. They kill us in Iran. They write hate language against us in Israel, and they terrify us in Gaza. Ah, Lord, may your sun rise again on the Middle East. Deliver us from the mouth of the lion. I want a divine revival. Will you not bless our countries? Yes, you will bless us in the name of Jesus. I shall tell my brothers and sisters that you are coming and that you are the blessing itself. I shall tell them that you have not hidden your face from us. You shall continue to see and to listen because you are just. I shall tell them that all the ends of the earth will come back to you and all the tribes of the nations will kneel down before you. This is your assured promise. Ah, Lord, I wait for your healing. Come and heal your country from this epidemic. Come, O Lord Jesus, to Bethlehem, to Jerusalem, to Nazareth, to Tel Aviv, to Syria, Lebanon, Jordan, Egypt, and to all the countries of our region. May every knee bow down before you. Honor your church in the Middle East. We want a whole nation to be born by your miraculous work. We want a nation that worships you because it has recognized that Christ is alive. Oh Lord, may this future shape my present. Amen. Amen. Indeed. Johanna, 
There's another book that you've more recently published uh, on the Gospel of John. It's entitled Reading the Gospel of John Through Palestinian Eyes. And uh, I'm just, it's, it's available, obviously, as these books are on Amazon and also from, published by Langham Publishing. So it's available from Langham and Christian bookshops, I'm sure. But let me read uh, what it says here, that uh, Reverend Johanna Catanaccio invites us to encounter the text anew, this time from the perspective of a 21st century Palestinian Christian. Now, some people would say, surely the Bible just means what the Bible says, no matter whose eyes you're reading it through. So is this idea of having, quote, perspectives on the text not in some way distorting it? What is this book trying to do in encouraging us to read a gospel that we all know very well, but to read it through Palestinian eyes rather than our own eyes? Do you see the point of my question? Yes, yes. There is something called sometimes contextual theology, which basically means that when we read the Bible, we are influenced by our assumptions, by our background. And as a result of this influence, sometimes we miss things in the text. Sometimes we see them in a different color or in different way. And so as a result, we need to do theology in community and to do it recognizing that our backgrounds influence us and, and also to do it with a spirit of humility that we are willing to listen to other people who are different than us. And so I want to study the Gospel of John as a Palestinian who has been shaped by certain questions, by certain identities. And I believe that my background as a Palestinian helped me to be alert or to be uh, sensitive to certain questions that are already in the text, but others perhaps have not paid enough attention to, or perhaps they didn't see it the same way. And as a result of this, this can help us to grow together in our spiritual journey as we search for Jesus. So what are some of the uh, major questions that in my mind that push me to write this book? One of the questions that I ask, how does the Gospel of John relate to the Old Testament? Because it seems to me that John, as a follower of Jesus, is struggling with the, the way the temple is being used in Judaism, the way uh, the Sabbath is being used in Judaism, the way, uh, you know, like, uh, for example, uh, uh, Moses, the centrality of Moses, things like that. How the coming of Jesus Christ influenced our understanding of the Old Testament. And for me as a Palestinian, this is an important question because you just asked me right from the beginning, you know, you're a Palestinian, you read the Old Testament, how does it relate to you? And, and, uh, and my, uh, my at least short answer is that the coming of Jesus Christ shaped our understanding of the Old Testament. And we have to take that very seriously, the way the New Testament reads the Old Testament. So, holy space, which is basically the idea of temple where people today 
because people today in my context struggle about building the temple, about the Dome of the Rock, about this is a very uh, uh, alive question for, for us, holy space. Holy space is being reread in light of the coming of Christ. Holy time, which is the Sabbath as the uh, main content, is being reshaped by the coming of Jesus Christ in John 5. Holy space in John 2 and 4. Uh, holy history. A lot of people talk about the history of the Jewish people, about things like that. And when they talk about history, they talk about Moses in particular and about Abraham. And this is very important in holy history. John is rereading this holy history in John 6 and 7 and 8 and connecting that holy history to the centrality of Jesus Christ. Holy people is being reread in light of the centrality of Jesus Christ. And even a holy land is being reread in light of the centrality of Jesus Christ in John 10. And holy life is being reread in light of the centrality of Jesus Christ in John 11. And I compare in my book between a very precious text for Jewish people today, which is Ezekiel, basically 36, 37, 38, and even the national anthem is being inspired by these texts in Israel. And so, and, and a lot of Christian Zionist perspective is being influenced as well by this text. I believe that John is rereading this text because in John 8, he is talking about Abraham, just like Ezekiel 33. Ezekiel 33 is talking about Abraham and about inheritance of land. And then in Ezekiel 34, is talking about the good shepherd. And John in John 10 is talking about the good shepherd. And then in Ezekiel 36 and 37, is talking about resurrection language. And John in, in John 11 is talking about resurrection language. So I'm arguing that John is rereading the idea within Ezekiel about the restoration in relation to Jesus Christ. Regardless of whether you see this as the ultimate fulfillment, the only fulfillment, the one of the fulfillments, it is part of the conversation in relating to the Old Testament. And I want to bring that conversation in something I called polyphonic truth, which basically means that truth has several voices talking to each other, sometimes in tension, sometimes in harmony. But in the conversation, we discover God, not only in cognitive information, but we discover God sometimes in tension, in questions, in ministry, in, in, in mystery. And, uh, and this discovery in the Gospel of John should lead us to mission should lead us to being transformed by the image of God into people of love. And so I explain this in the book, what does it mean to be people of love today as a Palestinian? What does it mean to be people of unity today as a Palestinian? What does it mean to be people of the cross? How is the cross, for example, today understood and its implications for Palestinians? In evangelical theology, people focus on the cross many times from the perspective of redemption, but seldom they took a look at the cross as a hermeneutical lens, or they look at the cross as, for example, a, a, as a political reality, as a social reality. 
So I discuss in this book Palestinian engagement with the concept of the cross, not only from the perspective of redemption, but for example, the struggle between peacemaking between Rome by crucifying people and between Jesus by being crucified and by bringing peace through forgiveness and through ultimate commitment to love your enemy to the extent of going to the cross. That's what Jesus is doing on the cross. So these are perspectives that, as a Palestinian, I try to unpack further for those who read the book. Thank you. Thank you so much. And just to say that the book, again, is Reading the Gospel of John Through Palestinian Eyes. Johanna, I hope you will continue writing. You again told us a moment or two ago about the the missional nature of a book like this. We talked earlier about theological education as being missional because it's transformative. Would you say the same thing about writing? Here's a quote from uh, one of our um, Christian publishers in Eastern Europe uh, who is connected to Langham. And at one point in the interview, he says, I'm not in the book publishing business. I'm in the life-changing business. And we thought that was a wonderful quote, and I think you would probably agree. Amen. Amen. I, it can't be stated better. It's wonderful. I fully agree. And, and I think that um, writing is a, a, a divine calling to uh, many of us. The scriptures many times ask people to write, and uh, that's part of, of serving the kingdom of God and extending it. And I want to say I am so thankful that I can write one line and then one paragraph and then one page. And by God's grace, it becomes one book. And so, uh, so one, one, one person said one time, I remember, it takes a lot of courage to stand before an empty page with a pen. And so, and so it's, um, I want to say that as I write, I always pray, and I said, God, please make this writing change my heart. Because when my heart changes, I can really touch the heart of other people as well. Because it's only God who changes people, not us. That reminds me of uh, a quotation, being Irish myself, words that were found uh, in a Celtic monastery that had obviously been written by one of the very early scribes as a writer. And it says this, O Lord, may it be your wisdom, not my folly, which passes through my arm and my hand. May your words take shape upon the page. For when I am truly faithful to your dictation, then my hand is firm and strong. And I have that I have that on a little plaque um, beside where I do my writing. So... I very much resonate with what you said. Johanna, let's um, come back to Nazareth and Bethlehem, um, where where you've lived and worked for so long. For many of us, we, we think of those towns, you know, with Bible story picture books in mind, you know, the little village, you know, little town of Bethlehem, or, you know, Nazareth is a little village that Jesus was, a, Joseph was a carpenter in and so on. Tell us just a little bit about what those towns are like now and what life is like there today. Well, we are, no, we are not using camels anymore. So for those who are wondering, so, uh, it's, uh, I mean, um, 
Israel is a modern state, basically well-developed uh, in transportation, in companies, in uh, high-tech. High tech. Uh, so, so when it comes to Israel-Palestine, there is a big diversity in the country. There is a, a, there is a big difference between Gaza, which is very difficult situation, and between Tel Aviv, which looks like, you know, most advanced cities in the world. Uh, and so it's really hard to uh, describe the whole country, but I would say that Bethlehem is a small town and uh, very warm people, friendly, but it is suffering from political realities because it is surrounded by a, a wall uh, that tries to prevent people from moving freely because of political decisions and tensions in the country. And uh, it's, in my opinion, it's oppressive wall. Uh, and so, uh, so Bethlehem is, is suffering. It's not easy, uh, the life there. Nazareth, we have freedom of movement. We can move around easily. And uh, the people who live in Nazareth are uh, citizens of Israel. So I am a Palestinian and citizen of Israel at the same time. Uh, I vote, I pay taxes, all of that. And, uh, and so I am able to travel freely. I can go to Bethlehem uh, and, uh, and help my Palestinian brothers and sisters there. It takes about two hours drive uh, to, from, from uh, Nazareth to Bethlehem, but the checkpoint can be unpredictable. So I might not always make it on time or go in, sometimes can take several hours. Uh, but uh, the, these towns are now have cars, have buildings, have computers, uh, and, and uh, basically uh, have uh, much more people than the time of Christ. You know, we have hundreds of thousands, so. Yes, indeed. And as we um, are thinking at the moment of coming towards Advent and Christmas, Tell us a little bit about how you and your family, and you can tell us as well about your family. We'd love to hear, you know, the name of your wife and so on and your family. Um, how will you be celebrating Christmas and what's it like for Palestinians at that time of year? You know, uh, as, as a kid, I loved Christmas because we had a long vacation from school. And the, the reason for that, because we have three Christmas celebrations. We have the Armenian Christmas celebration, we have the Orthodox Christmas celebration, and we have the Catholic Christmas celebration. All your so, Christmases, <laughs> it's amazing. Yeah, so we have we have uh, diverse uh, denominations, and we don't all celebrate the same day. So we had to celebrate different different times, and sometimes we are we are confused because we meet someone we don't know whether we tell them. Merry Christmas or not, you know, because they might be like the next week or so. Uh, but, uh, but you know, like uh, during Christmas time, uh, it's time for a celebration. We have a Christmas tree. We have, uh, you know, we go to Bethlehem. We have the Bethlehem Mass uh, during Christmas. We have scouts all over the streets. Uh, people are very friendly and uh, talk to each other. Uh, very celebrative, and um, and I think uh, Christmas is a time of uh, remembering peace. 
in the midst of war. Everyone is talking about peace during Christmas. And Christmas for us is also a time of hospitality because people from all over the world come to Bethlehem, to Jerusalem. So we celebrate with all the people around the world as they come. But I want to say uh, recently, I've been studying the book of Revelation and I was um, surprised by how Revelation celebrates Christmas. And I want to say in Revelation 12, there is a Christmas story about a child that is being born, but yet the dragon is waiting there to swallow that child. And, uh, and uh, I don't want to give you the whole sermon, but I want to say that Christmas is also a time of cosmic battles between the kingdom of the evil one and the kingdom of Christ. And for, for me, the kingdom of Christ has the last word and it is victorious. So for me, Christmas is a time of triumph, of celebration, that the kingdom of Christ shall rule over this world and the civilization of love and justice shall prevail. And we, through our faithfulness and even through our martyrdom, we can celebrate this kind of victory. Wonderful. How will your family celebrate? Tell us, well, tell us about your family. And then also, how can we best pray for you and your family? My wife is a very gifted lady. She is the director of the Arab-Israeli Bible Society. Her name? And Dina. Dina. D Dina. And, uh, and uh, Dina is uh, many times, uh, I mean, she is my spiritual partner and sometimes my spiritual mentor. And I am so, uh, so blessed by my wife. Uh, because my wife is, uh, is rooted in a spirituality that reaches out to all the churches in my community to discover the wealth of these churches. And I love the, uh, uh, the traditions in, in many other churches that bring wealth of relating to Jesus Christ from different church historical backgrounds. Uh, I have three boys, Emmanuel, Jonathan and Christopher, Chris. Mm. Wonderful, so, good name, good name. Chris, Chris is a good name, <laughs> obviously. So, <laughs> yeah. yes. so I have um, these three uh, wonderful names and uh, they are all teenagers. So now you know how to pray for me. Uh, yes. <laughs> <laughs> so it's, uh, we celebrate Christmas with the family. We usually go to the family of... Uh, uh, Dina's parents and uh, all the family come together. Everyone brings food. We eat a lot. Uh, we pray together uh, and uh, we give gifts sometimes. And uh, basically we read the gospel stories. We make quizzes with each other, with the children. And uh, we try to celebrate all of the uh, Dina's fa uh, family. They are followers of Jesus, which makes it... Hmm different for us. Mm -hmm. This is how we celebrate Christmas. And at church, we love to sing Christmas carols. Uh, it's one of our favorites during the uh, this season of the year. So we wait and we put this uh, all the time in our cars, in our places. So we keep hearing these Christmas carols all the time. Mm -hmm. 
Wonderful. Well, Johanna, thank you so much for this conversation. Let me pray for you now, and uh, and then we'll close. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our dear brother Johanna and his wife Dina and his three teenage boys. We ask, Lord, that you would bless them as he was praying that he wants to be a blessing. We ask that you would bless him and his family, that also that you would protect him and that you would make his ministry of teaching and writing uh, and peacemaking a real blessing in that region, which has suffered so much, uh, and especially with the community of of Palestinian believers who are in many ways a, a tiny minority within that much larger community. Bless them, Lord, and protect them, and may your will be done and your kingdom come on earth as in heaven we pray. In the name of Jesus. Amen. thank you to Chris and Johanna for the blessing of that conversation. You can learn more about Johanna and his books by visiting the resource section of langham.org. Again, I'm Angel Torero, and thank you for joining me for On Mission with Chris Wright, a podcast produced by Langham Partnership. Visit langham.org to discover how they multiply and equip leaders around the world. If you enjoyed today's conversation, will you let us know by giving us a review and sharing this with a friend? And then join me for future episodes where we'll be talking to leaders in Zambia, Palestine, Kenya, Brazil, and beyond. We look forward to having you join for our next episode of On Mission with Chris Wright. In the meantime, God bless. God bless.